Welcome to The Future Strategist with James Miller. Today, my guest is Steve Hsu. Steve is a theoretical physicist who also studies the genetics of human intelligence. If you're interested in the possibilities of increasing human intelligence through genetic manipulation, Steve is probably one of the top five people in the world to talk to, so I'm quite honored to have him as my guest today. Unfortunately, when I interviewed Steve, the audio quality for the first 21 minutes of the interview wasn't all that great. I think there might have been something wrong with my internet connection. Also, I think the interview got to be far more interesting after the first 20 or so minutes. So I was worried that if I just played the interview straight, I would lose a lot of listeners before we got to the good stuff. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to skip the first 21 minutes. We're going to jump into the interview. And then after we get to the end of the interview, I'm going to present the beginning of the interview. So the interview is going to start off, and Steve and I have been talking about the possibilities of increasing human intelligence uh, through embryo, embryo selection. And Steve is, is going to start explaining how we can use existing fertility technology to make genetic improvements to embryos. Yes. So let me just describe the current situation. So I, I, will, I will describe only technologies which actually exist and are used daily today. Okay. Okay. So currently each year about a million cycles of IVF are performed worldwide. And so IVF is in vitro fertilization. You uh, inject hormones in the female causing her to overproduce eggs. Generally a younger woman can produce 10 or 20 eggs which are then harvested. Uh, by the way, this is not a particularly expensive procedure. I mean, if you do it in place like Korea or Taiwan, it's a few thousand dollars per cycle. In the U.S., it's much more expensive, but that's not because it's intrinsically a uh, expensive thing. It's just that uh, medical costs in the U.S. are messed up. Um, so um, then you extract the eggs, you fertilize them with the male sperm, and generally you could end up plausibly with 10 or 20 embryos. And then uh, you let the embryos grow to about 50 cells, and then you can select, you can pull off a few cells, uh, generally from the placental region, without damaging the embryo. And then you can genotype those, uh, the DNA that you amplify the DNA from those cells, and then you can genotype. So everything I just described to you is possible today. Mm -hmm. Now the question is, what can you conclude? What can you learn from the genotypes? You can select against specific Mendelian diseases. So if you have a disease which is controlled by a single mutation, uh, you can make sure that the embryo that you choose ultimately doesn't have that negative mutation. So you can select against hundreds, actually thousands of known genetic diseases. You could select for eye color, you could select for gender, you could select for hair color. Um, you can, we are just now beginning to get to the point where you could select for things like height, um, we cannot yet build predictors which are good enough to select for intelligence. But we're, I think, on the verge of that. And the main barrier is just getting enough data, enough geno human genotypes with phenotype scores. When do you think people will start doing that, start selecting for intelligence? When will we have the ability to, at least? Well, it really depends on things out of my control. So if you, if you actually ask, so right now... Um, if you look at genetic studies that are planned, say, in the next five years, there are many studies planned uh, which involve a million people or more. Mm -hmm. Okay, And I, I think I said earlier that roughly the predicted data threshold that you need is on the order of millions. Okay, So, so if one of those studies concludes in the next few years and they were careful to get the cognitive scores, which generally most of them don't, the main thing re retarding the specific question you and I are interested in is that they generally don't get the cognitive scores of the people that they're doing the study on. They might get their height, they might get their BMI, they get their <laughs> blood sugar level, but they, you know, their cancer status or whatever it is, but they don't get their IQ score. Do they get their SAT score at least? No, they don't. Okay. So there, there's tons of data lying around where you have the genotype and you might have the height of the individual involved or their BMI or something like that, but you don't know their IQ score. So the, the, the reason I can't answer your question is that, is that I don't know 
exactly which of these studies will carefully gather the cognitive score and make the data available for people like me to analyze. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly well within our power. I mean, we are going to, there are many studies in many different countries that are going to gather millions of genotypes in the next five years, for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, the question is just how many of them will get the cognitive data? And I, I honestly don't know, but I, I would say there's a good chance in five years we'll, we'll have good uh, cognitive ability predictors. So five years from now, parents you know, thinking of conceiving a child could say, let's not do it the natural way. Let's go to a fertility clinic and we can add what, how many IQ points on average? Let's say you have a, parents of average IQ. On average, how much could they add to their kid's IQ? I think a not crazy estimate would be, you know, it depends on all a bunch of variables like, well, how many embryos are you able to produce and how good is the genetic predictor? But I, I think it's not crazy to think a family could get eight or 10 points. Oh, that is huge in terms of life outcomes. It is. It is. It, it, ten or, eight or 10 points is the, could easily be the difference between a kid who has trouble doing a rigorous college degree and someone who doesn't have a problem doing a rigorous college degree. So, And would that change for parents who are very high end? If, if you, know, you had parents with IQs of 145 each, would it give them more or less benefit? I think it actually doesn't depend that much. And th that's related to my claim that there's tons of variants up for grabs. Okay. So you'd each, each get about from what the expected score, IQ score would be. Yeah, these are all rough, you know, numbers, but uh, they're not crazy. Okay. And then what if we went beyond embryo selection? How, when do you think we'll be able to use things like gene editing technologies like CRISPR to I, edit so, invariants? Yeah. So when I first started working on this subject, I was kind of confident that the selection stuff that you and I just discussed would be ready by the time we had the predictors. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's sort of two separate problems here. One is like wet wear things that you do to cells. And the yeah. other thing is like some huge uh, machine learning problem where you try to build genetic predictors. Right. There's sort of two very kind of orthogonal types of things. Right. Right. And I was confident five years ago that by the time the genomic prediction was a reality, that embryo selection, which we just discussed, would be ready to go. And it is ready to go today. Now. I had no idea at that time that some clever people were going to come up with new ways of really doing uh, very precise gene editing. And so that just happened. That surprised me. And right now we're in an era where we can do very precise gene editing and the techniques are just getting better in incredibly rapid rate. So there are just a bunch of labs working on this and new techniques and stuff like this. So at the moment, I feel kind of confident that possibly by the time we have the predictors, um, we might be able to do much things which are much better than selection of embryos. We might be able to do sort of fairly error-free direct editing of embryos. Well, um, how, how many like variants could you edit into a genome? Well, that's that just it's a question. It just depends on how good the technology is. So, you know, right now they can do very accurate edits to a limited region. But let's suppose you ask someone to make like 100 edits or 1000 edits. I'm not sure the technology today is really up to that. Right. That mm -hmm. might cause some errors to sneak in, et cetera, et cetera. And so to say where it'll be five or 10 years from, I don't know. But I, I don't think it's crazy to think that, you know, 10 years from now, we'll have very, very good editing so we can make, you know, really significant changes. Uh, of course, now whether society accepts these things and where it's legal and where it's not, these are all open questions. Yeah, no, definitely. Although I like, as economists like to say, there isn't really a society. There's a whole bunch of competing groups. Yeah. And I predict that the realization of these technologies will be uneven. So there'll be some countries where it's illegal and some countries where it's totally open and rich people will fly to the... Mm -hmm. Uh, latter type of country to get these things done. Yeah, definitely. Now, how many um, IQ points do you think in 10 years you could get from using CRISPR? Well, you know, I don't like to, it, it may seem like I'm a crazy futuristic <laughs> speculator, but I'm, I'm actually not. I'm actually very, very conservative in, in the kinds of things I say. But I, the thing I would say is that if we have really good editing, um, the sky's the limit. And 
you know, when I say something like, oh, there are thousands of variants that might affect IQ each by a little bit, um, most of us are then carrying many hundreds of the wrong, the bad version. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we could flip a big chunk of those hundreds of bad variants and therefore get an IQ, uh, which is higher than what any human in history has ever had. I'm pretty confident that's true, even though I've, you know, I've been, a lot of people don't <laughs> agree with my claim, but I, I'm pretty sure that that's actually true. That, well, that's civilization changing. I mean, if we start getting that. Yes. I think we're definitely at an inflection point where one and certainly two generations from now, human civilization will, you know, will be deeply impacted by these technologies. I mean, and that as an economist will say, we, a lot of economic decisions are based on the very long term. So yeah. you, you have people worrying about saving for retirement. Well, if your retirement is, you know, far enough in the future, like, well, we'll have these super geniuses inventing all these great things or even something, you know, like, like death. I mean, if you're, you know, maybe, maybe we're too old, but if you're like a 25 year old college student, you could say to yourself, I'm probably not going to die because by the time I get to be 75, they'll we'll have these genetic researchers who were smarter than anyone who's ever existed and they'll probably figure out how to handle death. Well, again, I'm not, I'm really not a big speculator about these things. I, I try to be, you know, more conservative in my uh, predictions about the future, but I will say that I, I sort of feel like on the timescale of say the next 50 years or hundred years, the big question is whether machines get smart first or humans manage to stay <laughs> at pace with them. Yeah, I and, agree. I agree yeah. with that. And I'm I'm very worried about um, unfriendly AI. I think that might be a problem that's too difficult for us to solve. And so my I think the safest thing for our species to do might be to recklessly increase human intelligence and just take chances because we want to get really smart computer programmers before we figure out how to create machines smarter than us. Yeah, but ironically, it could be those really smart uh, superhuman intellects who actually finally solved the AI problem. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know how to predict any of this stuff. And so I, I find it a guilty pleasure, you know, a kind of an amusement to talk to people like it, Miri. I don't know if you're familiar with Miri. Yes, That's, yes. People like it, Robin Hanson or people at Miri. I love to chat with him about this stuff. But to me, for my personal taste... I would rather work on actually solving a concrete problem which moves us forward on the technology than speculate about how it's going to go 100 years from now. And I don't expect to be here 100 years from now. So, so you know. Okay. Um, well, let me ask you about the cost structure of genome. And let's say once we've used CRISPR, we, we can make a bunch of edits to genomes. Is it is the marginal cost going to be very high of doing it again for another couple? Or are most of the costs, is it mostly like software where it costs billions to get it right initially, but then it's very cheap to keep doing it, to keep making copies? I, I don't know enough to say, but, but the, the edits, the, generally the edits will be different for each couple that you need to make. So it's to first approximation, it's basically random which of the bad variants you have. Mm -hmm. But all of us are carrying around for sure many hundreds of the less optimal variant. And so you would you would kind of customize the edits uh, in this hypothetical future. You would customize the edits to a particular couple, actually to a particular embryo. Mm -hmm. So. Um, OK, so there'll still be a lot of marginal costs involved in each in each couple. We won't be able to you know, you, you couldn't sell it for ten dollars. A treatment for poorer people in Africa, say, and make well, it. Eventually, eventually, maybe you could, but uh, you know, there'd have to be a long period of development of you know making these um, technologies better and cheaper. But within ten years, do you think it would be profitable to sell this to the American middle class, assuming no government interference? I don't think that. So, if you ask me what the future ten years, I like because I can say more concrete things. About it. So, I believe that ten years from now, there will be wealthy people going through IVF and genetic screening of their embryos. That will be a thing, and people will fly to you know, probably someplace in Asia to do it, mm -hmm. uh, and that will be a thing. And maybe 10 years from now on the horizon will be the editing option. And, uh, you know, with a ton of hype and then a lot of debate about exactly how safe it is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, but people, you know, 
entrepreneurs getting ready to introduce it 10 years, you know, but, but the selection thing will definitely be ready for prime time. Are entrepreneurs entering that field yet? Are people setting up fertility clinics with the hopes of in four or five years, there'll be a mark, there'll be a boom in this field with, you know, at least Um, selection. The answer is sort of yes. Um, There are, you know, this is the case with every new technology is that there are few people who get it. And there were, and, and a subset of those people who get it are actually entrepreneurs who want to, you know, make it happen and profit from it. And they're out there talking to venture capitalists and wealthy investors trying to get going. But of course, you know, not everybody believes in their vision of the future or can validate their technical claims because they don't have the background. And we're right now in a period of time where that's happening with these technologies. Okay, so people are seeking funding right now. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's interesting. Is there a danger that if you, you know, you put too many of the, the positive variants together that that won't quite work, that something bad will happen? I, I don't know if it's a good yeah. analogy, but it's like if you make every part of a car too efficient, maybe the car would go too fast. Yeah. So, OK. So first of all, like in the simplest models that we build as predictors, they, they're linear. So they don't take into account sort of second order feedback effects from, you know, flipping a bunch of DNA switches. Mm -hmm. And so eventually those secondary, if you're really going to flip a lot, then those second order effects eventually become important. And also it could be that there are some subtle negative effects. Uh, There's something called pleiotropy, which means that maybe I'm flipping the gene in order to increase your intelligence, but by accident, I make you very nearsighted Mm -hmm. or I make you very wimpy. Or, or Aspie, you know? Yes. So nobody quite knows exactly what all the pleiotropic effects are going to be. And so there's various, there's debate back and forth about how it's going to be. But I would just say this, that even in the world where there is, there are these nonlinearities to take into account and there's significant pleiotropy, because there are so many different edits to be made, there are so many thousands of variants that you can deal with that I would be absolutely shocked if you could not come up with a genotype which produces a human that is above average in health and athleticism and good personality traits and smarter than any human that's ever lived in history. And I'll tell you why I think that. Because people who are very close to what I just described clearly existed already historically. Mm -hmm. So not every super genius, historical super genius, was wimpy and unhealthy and Aspergery. There were some that had very positive personalities, were had good empathy, were healthy. You know, there are clear examples of those. And so you could just start with one of those guys and tweak them a little. And surely it's not possible that that person was actually a, lo- a global maximum. And and you know, surely there are still some tweaks to be made to that individual's genotype that would push them further in a positive direction. And so therefore, there are gene. That's an existence proof that. There clearly are some genotypes out there which are beyond what we've seen. And that's familiar to every agricultural breeder who's ever bred sheep, dogs, cows, corn, you name it. They can always take the domestic thing and if they want, they can push it in a direction which is better than any wild type that's ever lived. Yeah, you had a great picture on your blog of chickens from like like the 1950s and now and how we've managed to breed chickens that are just so much bigger. Yep. Yep. And they mature faster, et cetera, et cetera. Now, they may have some, you know, negative things like that chicken can't run the marathon as well as the littler chicken, right? But, um, you know, that's a reasonable trade-off. Um, I, I should mention that the most advanced breeding program and genomic selection program that's around is for cattle. And so when breeders um, – so, for example, if you're a cattle breeder and you want to buy some sperm from a top bull – that the best way to evaluate that bull used to be to look at their pedigree. But now the best way to evaluate that bull is actually to take a SNP genotype and to run it through a bunch of algorithms. Uh-huh. And it gives you a figure called the quote net merit of that bull. And the, the, there are now bulls that have net merit scores, which are far beyond, you know, any bull that existed say 30 years ago or 50 years ago. And so there's just steady progress in this field and it's, it's become highly technical and scientific the U.S. Department of Agriculture keeps track of net merit scores for bulls, and people pay a huge amount of money for the frozen sperm from these bulls. So, 
you know, unless you think humans are magically different from, you know, those mammals are pretty, those bulls are pretty complex creatures themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Unless you think that we're radically, magically different from them, I think this similar story is going to apply with humans. Well, I, how difficult do you think it will be to increase human intelligence? I mean, one theory I have is that since probably everything affects your intelligence, you know, how, how strong your heart is, how, you know, how happy you are, since the intelligence in some ways is the sum of your total capacities, that should make it easier to boost intelligence because there's so many different ways of doing it. Is that, I think it, does that make I think, sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think it is easy. I think, I think we see, like, the, here's a funny thing. Like, if you're a person of average intelligence, say your IQ is 100, you can kind of just barely understand what the world looks like to someone whose IQ is like 130. Right. Okay. And you can't really tell the difference between someone who's 130 and 160. They just seem like smart guys to you, but you can't tell the difference. Okay. But if you're 160, you can kind of, I think it's easier for you to grasp what the world for a, maybe not intuitively, but by observation, what is the world like for a person who's 100? What is the world like for a person who's 130? It's, it's within your grasp to kind of get at those things if you care to. Mm -hmm. So it's, at least for some people, it's clear there's just an enormous range of human intelligence. It's not obvious to the average person because the average person has little blinders on. They can't see beyond a certain right upper limit. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But for other people, I can I, I know pe and you know I know people who I consider much smarter than me, and and then I you know on on a even on a top university campus, I consider maybe I can see it just a tremendous range, and I can see people who can solve problems that I struggle to solve. They can solve them easily. And um, so I just see this enormous range. So clearly there's a lot of variance and, and a big chunk of it is obviously controlled by genes. Yeah. Yeah. I had that in grad school. I have a PhD in econ. So I went to the University of Chicago and I remember studying the math and it was sometimes I had so much trouble and I, I a friend of mine could just get it really easily. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's just your brain is so much better at processing this than mine is. There's a there's a great series of quotes that I put on my blog from Jeff Bezos. So let me tell you about Jeff Bezos. So mm -hmm. Jeff wanted his, his, when he was a kid, his dream was to be a physicist, a theoretical physicist like Einstein or Feynman. And he went to Princeton, which is one of the top physics departments in the world. So he's a Princeton undergrad. He's majoring in physics. And it just happens Bezos graduated from Princeton the same year as, and in the same eating club as a bunch of friends of mine that I went to graduate school with, uh, later on okay at berkeley so i just know all these bezos stories and bezos has publicly talked about how he hit the wall at princeton he hit the wall when he as a junior took quantum mechanics and he was taking it with people that i actually know that i went to graduate school with okay and he says i struggled in that class i could not understand you know i could not follow and these other guys were just doing it effortlessly okay so he understood, and he, he's an intellectually honest guy. You know, he's got nothing to be ashamed of. He's obviously one of the most accomplished people on earth. But he just points out, like, I hit the wall. I could, I met these guys at Princeton. It was such a great experience. These guys were phenomenal geniuses. As far as abstract thinking, they're way beyond me. And I, I switched majors to computer science. Now, interestingly, um, Bezos also, if you read about him at Amazon, there are many, many engineers who have been in meetings with Bezos, and they'll say things like, well, Bezos came in, and he didn't know anything about optimization theory, or he didn't know anything about you know, how to organize a call center or how to organize a warehouse sorting scheme. But he basically figured it out during the meeting, and he gave us better solutions than we had come into the meeting with. So you can see these – you can see there's a real hierarchy. Now, it's not politically correct in our current culture to talk about these hierarchies. So a lot of people hate me because I occasionally write about these hierarchies, but um, – they're there. They're real. I mean, you talk to Jeff Bezos, he'll tell you first thing that they're real. He thinks he's much smarter than almost all the engineers in his company, but he thinks he's much dumber than all the people who do quantum physics. Mm -hmm. In some ways, is that a, a misallocation of intelligence to have our smartest people working on quantum physics? Maybe, but the lever arm into the future is very strong. See, you're saying, oh, yeah, the guy should be working at the call center, making it more efficient for Amazon. But think about the future lever arm. If those guys come up with innovation now that affects, you know, the future, uh, what we can do with our technology 20, 30, 40 years from now, it, it's got value, but it's hidden from us because we can't see the future very well. How is theoretical physics managed to attract such high IQ people? It's interesting because everybody who's reason, <laughs> I'll put it this way. If you have a reasonably good high school education, not, not a great one, just a moderately good 
high school education and you're pretty smart, at some point you will open a textbook and someone will start talking to you about something like as simple as like special relativity. Or someone will start talking to you about something as simple as like, oh, the hydrogen atom. Okay. And it stimulates these basic questions like what is the nature of space? What is the nature of time? What is the nature what is the nature of the fundamental constituents of matter and how they interact? So you're you're gonna be exposed to those concepts. And if you have a good brain, why would you not think about those things? Why would you not suddenly be very curious about those things? So there's this huge selection thing happening all the time, I think, where anybody who has access to even a very mediocre US level education, if they're above some threshold in ability, they're going to be exposed to these questions, and these questions are intrinsically interesting. Plus, people like Feynman and Einstein and Hawking, they're very lionized. So if you were a smart kid, why would you not spend some time thinking about these things? Yeah. Okay. Um, do you think, going to another topic, would it be possible to use gene editing on, like, on adults to make, to make us smarter? So the company that is co-founded by some of the guys who invested CRISPR, like in, invented CRISPR, like George Church and Feng Zhang, uh, this company, I believe, is in clinical trials right now. To uh, one of the things they're doing is there's a genetic condition that predisposes people to macular degeneration, mm -hmm. and so. In one of the clinical trials, they're injecting CRISPR into the eyes of adult people who have the bad mutation, and it edits the cells in their eye and edits the good version in, and it cures their – well, if the trials succeed, it cures their macular degeneration. Mm -hmm. So there's a there's a CRISPR done on adult cells. I've seen published papers in which things like muscular dystrophy – in rats, I think rat muscles has been ameliorated by injecting CRISPR to fix the mutation. Um, so, so there are lots of there's there's just a it's a golden age for this kind of research. Okay. So I want to know though, is there is there hope for me? Can I hope in ten years that I could increase my own intelligence through genetic engineering? I I have no idea. It's beyond my <laughs> expertise, but. Sure, in some science fiction novel, they're inject. You know, I, have you read Flowers for Algernon? Yes, yes. Yeah. So, in some science fiction novel, there's a CRISPR <laughs> injection into your brain or into your bloodstream that um, kind of upgrades your cells in your brain, and they rewire themselves better. And you know, who knows? Okay. So, um, you mentioned like the problems of political correctness. It, it is weird because I think most professors would say there are students who are just inherently smarter than other students because we, we see students who seem to be really earnest and they try really yep. hard and they you still you give them a C even though they deserve the F. Right. And you, I think most of us realize that there's, it's something that they can't change. It's yep. not just grit, at least not by the time they're, we yeah. have them. I think it's, you know, most almost all professors, unless they're really, really ideological, agree that there's uh, there's a component which is kind of, quote, intrinsic intelligence, and there's another component which is grit or conscientiousness or work effort. And I think they're somewhat, at least somewhat independent of each other. And I think almost everybody agrees with that, um, except for a few ideologues. Yeah. But again, like someone like me is subject to vicious attack for, you know, for stating something like that. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate if it, you know, if it slows down when we get significantly smarter people. Yeah, the, 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 the range of variation is, is likely to increase over time. Yeah, yeah. Does this give an advantage to a country like Singapore or China in this kind of research and, you know, in, in coming up with techniques to develop smarter children? It hasn't manifested yet, but I think it, it easily could in the next generation or two. Like when the technologies really get going, you could have some countries that are just against it and they won't allow it. Mm hmm and uh, other countries which make it free, part of their healthcare system. Yeah, yeah I, I could see eventually countries mandating it. If yeah, you, it cost, benefit, cost benefit, for example, of the Mendelian disease stuff, which is already possible, is quite positive. So, you know, actually something like over one or 2% of babies born today have some serious genetic condition, which is gonna ultimately be quite expensive for the healthcare system. So if you can, if you can, at a cost point, remove that one or two percent probability, um, you can save a lot of money. Yeah, I guess, and politically, it'd probably be a lot easier if we could do this through editing embryos rather than discarding the ones. 
Yeah, that's interesting. It, it really depends on to what extent people care about discarding embryos. So here's an interesting question. If you believe, if you assert that abortion is not murder, right. how can you complain about me throwing away 50 cells? Yeah. Right. Because late term, you know, abortions it looking a lot more like a person than a little ball of like a soccer ball of cells. Mm -hmm. Right. So if I, for me to say, oh, I made these 10 soccer balls of cells, but I'm only going to use one or two. For you to accuse me of something evil, what would you say to a woman who aborts a month, three month old fetus? Yeah. Unfortunately, right. yeah, I think the attack people would use would be, you know, the the relationship to Hitler. What you're doing is eugenics. Hitler, we're calling what he tried to do eugenics. Therefore, you're as bad as Hitler. Therefore, yeah, I, I would never I don't think it should be. I don't think you should ever compel other people to do something right. Like if you forcibly end somebody else's life because you don't like their genotype, right. I think that's evil. Yeah. But if you agree that these 50 cells don't have as much of a claim to human rights as say a living, a, a human that's been born already, then it seems pretty reasonable to let the parent choose. I like to say the parents get to choose which of the 10 universes they want to live in, mm -hmm. right? There's 10 universes, each in which they have one of 10 different kids. All the kids are really their kids. They come from their genes, but let them choose the one they want to live in, the one where the kid is the healthiest or the one where the kid is you know, the brightest or the best soccer player, whatever they want. Yeah, I think since we know that a lot of people are really more afraid of losses and they, they, they dream of getting gains, it might be easiest to sell this to parents by saying, you know, we can almost eliminate the chance of your getting a kid who has this bad disease or who, who has an extremely low IQ. Yes, I, I'm almost certain the way that the value proposition will be sold by these startups and IVF clinics is first step is we will eliminate downside risk for you. Yeah. Give me a few thousand bucks to run this test and I will eliminate the one or 2% genetic Mendelian risk. I'll eliminate the big negative fluctuation in IQ, big negative fluctuation in height, uh, athleticism. I'll eliminate those tail risks for you. Okay, nobody, who's gonna complain about that? Maybe the Vatican, but nobody else, right? <laughs> right. And then once people are used to that, then it's like, oh, but actually my predictor is a little better than it used to be. I can actually rank order all 10 of these. Do you want the rank order score? Or do you want me just to warn you about the one that's a out negative outlier? Well, every parent is going to say, no, give me the rank order score. Right. So that's how, then it's done. Right. So that, that's the transition from, you know, just being able to eliminate outlier risk to actually being able to score accurately things that's going to happen very fast. <laughs> is it going to be, possible to know the genetic architecture of beauty? Because I think that's yes. something that a lot of parents would care a great deal. I mean, would it be possible yeah. to yes. go from an embryo to say this is what the person's face is going to look like? Yes. It'll be technically challenging, but it will definitely be doable. And let me explain to you why. So uh, if you look at two identical twins, they kind of look alike, right? Yeah. So the facial morphologies are highly heritable. And uh, I don't know if you ever if you've ever looked at how like uh, in machine learning they do uh, face recognition. What they basically do is they they look at eigenfeatures of the face, specific variables that ca capture a lot of you know variation, and uh, they can express a face as an expansion in terms of those eigen uh, variables. And um, each of those coefficients is itself because of the argument I just gave you about twins. Each of the coefficients is itself highly heritable. So I can just do a GWAS, I can do a genetic study in which I, if I carefully measure facial morphology of people as the phenotype, so I scan your face with a, just a cheap video camera, but then I run it through a face recognition algorithm and it converts it into a set of numbers. Each of those number, each of those variables is highly heritable and I can do a GWAS for them and I can eventually figure out which genes, which DNA elements are controlling those variables. And eventually I'll be able to develop a score for facial attractiveness. Mm -hmm. Um, Craig Venter's new company, which is, you know, one of the entities that's going to try to sequence a million people, they are working right now on face, uh, recognition and heritability, uh, sorry, face reconstruction from DNA. Mm -hmm. uh, there will be kind of pathetic though, if we can select for facial features, but we can't select for intelligence because we've studied, we put more effort into figuring out facial features. It's very interesting. You see, these guys at HLI are taking the extra effort to fo carefully photograph the people that they sequence. And it's because they, they think that's an interesting phenotype that they should collect. 
but very few of these studies are actually trying to get cognitive ability. It's, and a lot of it is basically because of, you know, people's discomfort with, uh, you know, all the things you mentioned, like eugenics and yeah, Hitler yeah. and bad people. Am I correct in thinking, like, I mean, a 10-minute IQ test might be all that it takes to get a pretty good... Dating. Yes. If I'll tell you, if, if they just gave the Wonderlick, okay, <laughs> you know what the Wonderlick is? It's what they give to NFL players? Yeah, it's a very short, uh, it's a com private company that produces this test, and it's used by a lot of employers, too. But uh, it's also used by the NFL before the draft. And um, that's, a, I think, a 15-minute-ish test. It's very short. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty accurate. And I tell you, I would jump for joy if I, it were, if it were decided that each of these or many of these future genomic or current genomic studies would administer the Wonderlick to every person in the study. Mm -hmm. there's, there's so many things that are correlated with IQ. Might it be that if they're measuring enough things that they're effectively going to get IQ if you're measuring yeah. health and reaction time? And yeah, those are all things that are correlated, you know, like 0.3 or something with IQ and, and, and educational attainment might be correlated, you know, slightly more 0.4, whatever it is, depending on the society that you're from. So all those things are tools to get at uh, the, the actual thing you're interested in, which is cognitive ability. But you just have a loss of statistical power when you have to rely on those other variables and, and some confounding. So you're right. There'll be some, some information there. Yeah. So I, I just thought of something. Um, my my son, I have one child, and I imagine if he took an IQ test, he would score at least a standard deviation above both me and my wife. He's very smart. Would it be good measuring the kids like that who are much smarter than their parents? Would would that give you even more power because they're getting a certain combination of genes that must be favorable? Um, it doesn't. I don't think it helps a lot. I mean. Obviously, just having people with more plus variants gives you more power, you know, per dollar of sequencing. Mm -hmm. um, family studies, though, are extremely powerful. That's like the gold standard. If you can get family data, they call it trio data, like mother, father, son, or mother, father, daughter, because then a lot of the, uh, or, or sorry, mother, father, and siblings, because uh, a lot of the environmental confounds are removed in that kind of data because the kids experienced similar environments, and um, you know, you can actually compare uh, intergenerationally. So uh, that is that, that's the ideal data if you could really get it is huge numbers of families. Okay, but that's probably much harder to get. It is. It is. Okay. Do you think this would be a, if if there was a billionaire who wanted to make a huge impact on the world? Do you yeah. This this would be an area where they could be remembered a thousand years from now. Yes, I've probably made that pitch to individual billionaires at least five times. Whoa. <laughs> You've met a lot of rich people. Yeah, and I, I'm continuing to, uh, you know, make that pitch. Yeah, this, that could change everything. I, I read recently that there's a, 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 some talk about creating a genome from scratch where you put yeah. together every piece. Yep, yep. Oh, um, is that something that would have even even more power at creating a high IQ individual than gene editing? Well, it, it you know, it's interesting. So uh, theoretically, no, because if you had perfect editing – you could start with anybody and make them into anybody else, right? Mm -hmm. But um, I think so. The same guy, George Church, is involved both in you know CRISPR and also in this this synthetic project. And one of the things he said was, "Oh, well, this is interesting for various reasons, but one of them is there may be some limit ultimately to the amount of editing that we can do, and so maybe it's better just to you know synthesize the DNA whole from the beginning." So um, who knows? I mean, it's, for me, it's too far in the future to think about. Okay. Okay. Uh, once we did that, is it possible to go from from a genome to an embryo? Is it pretty easy to? I think so. I think well, if you could really synthesize the the DNA and just uh, you know replace the existing DNA in a cell with the new DNA, it's plausible that uh, you could get something going. Well, does that mean we could do cloning? We could dig up John van Neumann and just you know make a thousand clones of him? Yeah, I think so. Potentially. That would seem to be a good business um, proposition where you you get you sell John von Neumann embryos to couples to old yeah, couples who can't have children. His descendants might have a say about that, but um, <laughs> they should like it. Or you could, you know, I'm sure they understand evolution quite well. They'd be like, hey, what could be one, better? One of the greatest things that we're right on the verge of being able to do is we're getting really really good at extracting ancient DNA from bones and teeth and other things mm -hmm. is that we're really going to understand 
deep human history and human evolution on, you know, relatively recent timescales. Uh, because we'll be able to see like, well, let's see where, where people in, uh, AD 100, you know, systematically dumber or smarter than people living today. We can where see they, where their selection pressure is pushing them in one direction or the other direction. Uh, to some extent, we already know these things, but as we get more and more ancient DNA, we're going to be able to really pin them down. So we can see if people in classical Athens were were significantly yeah. smarter, or if it was just culture. If you can get the if you can get the DNA, yeah. Will we be able to resurrect the Neanderthals? Uh, I you know that's another George Church thing. So either so we we do have neanderthal genomes we have many actually and so you could edit a human toward uh you know in the neanderthal direction <laughs> or you could synthesize one hypothetically so you know these are all things which are again are there you, you know you have to make some assumptions about how the technology evolves but yeah they're they're plausible um, is it possible that it, before we experiment on humans with gene editing for intelligence, we'll do it on animals, we'll do it on chimpanzees? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, there are already, I think, people working on – so if, if this is a sort of basic uh, trope, if, to use a literary uh, term, in, in sort of wet lab science right now. If there's a gene you're interested in, uh, it's never been cheaper or easier for you to make a rat with that modified gene. Uh, sorry, mouse, rat, whatever you want, monkey. And then you can see what it does. Um, I think in China they made some Aspergery monkeys, <laughs> some autism, some monkeys with autism, deliberately. So, um, yeah, so all these things are going to happen. So might we overshoot and get like a Planet of the Apes situation where we create yeah. apes smarter yeah. than humans? Yeah, you know, it's funny because when I was a kid and I watched – I used to love watching all those movies, Planet of the Apes, and there was a TV series and stuff. I just thought it was like crazy science fiction. But now that you think about it, it's like, yeah, you could you could over you, you know, like you can imagine a sci fi world where we don't we're not allowed to do much experimenting on humans, but we do tons on monkeys and stuff. And then we accidentally overshoot and uh, we're in trouble because they're pretty they're pretty formidable. I guess it'd be even worse, though, on a, a species that breeds quickly if you did it with birds or rats. Yeah, you could you know get millions of them very quickly. And they'll just... yeah, I, I doubt these species which are quite far from us can be made smarter than us but um monkey you know chimpanzees i would guess you you know it's not implausible to me they could be made smart so you it is possible we could make chimpanzees that are smarter than humans yeah i, I would imagine probably their brains would have to be somewhat quite a bit bigger they would probably look different than existing chimps but, mm. um, but yeah it's not crazy to me it doesn't seem crazy well, um i is it also possible that we, we could figure out more of the genetics behind morality, that rather than just making smarter people, we could figure out what makes yes. sociopaths and what makes people nicer and make sure I, to breed that into the next generation? I think all of these things are heritable. So if you look in the behavior genetics literature, um, you generally get heritabilities of like 0.5 for a lot of these personality traits. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing that a lot of people don't realize is that when you have a trait which is difficult to measure – so the, the, the evaluation or the scoring of the trait itself is difficult. That artificially reduces the heritability in the study because you're not actually able to measure it properly. So that that's included as some kind of noise. Uh, and so the true heritability is always higher than what's estimated based on a, a, a noisy estimator of the trait. Mm -hmm. So I suspect the heritability of these things is actually probably as high as IQ. It's probably like 0.7 or 0.8. And so, yeah, you could make eventually very empathic, lovely people. <laughs> you could make very mean, sociopathic people. Oh, and I imagine if religion the group would eat the oh. person. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you want to put in tit for tat into their behavior. Yeah. They're, they start out nice, but then believe in revenge. So. Yeah, exactly. So you don't mess with them. I imagine. I know that religi religiosity is also inherited. So there could be very big fights. Oh, sure. Yeah. Or you, whether you have the next generation be religious or not. Yeah. And if you're a dictator, you, you, you want, you know, you'll engineer your subjects to be, you know, obedient and you know, yeah. nonviolent. Although only if you're a dictator with a very long time horizon. I guess it, it probably would make more sense for a monarchy where you're yeah. helping your son. If you're an 80, if you know, you're 70 years old and in charge of China, you might be like, well, these won't matter to me. But maybe in this hypothetical future, the ruler will live 500 years. Mm. Yeah. That's. 
that's certainly possible. Um, well, uh, I, I thank you. I've taken up a lot of your time. I really appreciate this. It's been uh, extremely interesting. Yeah, it was fun. I really enjoyed it. And uh, and you blog at um, Information Processing? Yes, Infoproc. Infoproc. If you just Google my name, you'll find it. Okay. All right. Well, um, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate this. Okay. Well, that was the end of the interview, and I'm now going to present the first 21 minutes of the interview. And um, please forgive the intermittently poor audio quality. So uh, welcome to The Future Strategist with James Miller. Uh, today, I'm honored to have a physicist, Steve Chu, Steve Shu, sorry, who is a physicist who uh, starts, started studying uh, the genetics of human intelligence and who is now the, your, vice pre your vice president at Michigan State University. That's correct. So, uh, Steve, how did you uh, transition or how did you start doing work on genetics? Well, I haven't fully transitioned. Uh, in fact, just as you called, I was working on some physics, some theoretical physics, so I haven't <laughs> left that field entirely. But about, actually, it's now been, I would say, almost six years, maybe more. Um, about that time, I started realizing that uh, sequencing costs, genotyping costs were going down very fast. And evolution and uh, genomics were subjects that I was very interested in really since I was a kid. But right about the time when I was in college, um, at that time, um, people were already telling physicists that, oh, all the problems in physics are solved. You should go work in biology, in particular molecular biology. And I was interested in those these topics even then. And I actually took some classes uh, at Caltech in molecular biology, but I realized that the technology wasn't really there to answer what I thought were the most interesting questions, like how the genetic code works, how did humans evolve to be the way they are, what explains our incredibly powerful and complex brains, which are built from a very short DNA program. Those are all questions I've been thinking about since I was a little kid. But it was just clear to me when I was in college that we weren't going to make progress in the near term on those questions. However, about six or seven years ago, um, I realized because it's getting so cheap to genotype people that certain questions will be answerable in my lifetime. And so I, I started thinking very hard about it and I ended up, uh, I was on sabbatical in Taiwan and I got in touch with the BGI, which um, is a big genomics lab in China. And they invited me and uh, some of my uh, collaborators to come and uh, give some lectures. And we ended up establishing a lab there and collaborating with them. So now I sort of spend, I don't know, a significant chunk, but not maybe not the majority of my research time, but at least a significant chunk of my research time on genomics. Is the math you use as a theoretical physicist similar to the kind of math you need to analyze genotype data? It's not directly similar. Interestingly, in physics, um, although... In the modern era now, uh, statistical analysis has become important. The sort of the sort of um, aesthetic goal of a theoretical physicist is to actually do some analysis, which is so powerful that it doesn't actually require statistics. <laughs> so beautiful on its own that you wouldn't need to actually think about you know experimental noise and statistics. But we we, we don't achieve that. But but that, that's our goal. Um, so there's a fair amount of math that. It, it's straightforward for someone with a physics background to learn, but it isn't necessarily what physicists use on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, but I would say that, you know, genomics now has really become a computational and st statistical subject. And so people with strong math and computational backgrounds really can um, make significant contributions in genomics now. I wonder if any economists have transitioned into starting to look at genomics. Um, you know, I was invited to a workshop uh, at the University of Chicago, uh, which was hosted in Heckman's, um, Heck, I don't know how they ex actually organized things at Chicago, but he seemed to have a house where his <laughs> institute was based, and uh, he had a bunch of collaborators there, and uh, there was a meeting involving uh, some lots of economists, and so there was some interest, but not in the real nitty gritty, uh, but more in the kind of social science application. Yeah, the implications of genetics. Um, yes, they, they didn't want to get in there and analyze, you know, uh, SNP genotypes or a uh, copy number variation, but but they were interested in the 
the broader implications. Okay. So BGI, that was the company that was collecting the DNA of people who had very high IQs, who did like very well on the GREs? So BGI is this huge company in China. It's located in Shenzhen, which is this southern city right across the border from Hong Kong. And it was originally called the Beijing Genomics Institute, and it was originally located in Beijing and originally part of the Chinese government, part of the Chinese Academy of Sciences. But the guys who ran it were very entrepreneurial, and so when they were offered, um, you know, the different regions in China compete actually economically. So if you're if you're an administrator in the Chinese government, and you're trying to move up, you want, you know, you're maybe responsible for some region like the Shenzhen region, and you want want to demonstrate economic growth and high-tech development and things like that, and that gets you ahead. So these regions actually compete for, uh, you know, talent. And so they recruited these guys away from Beijing. It changed the name from Beijing Genomics Institute to just the three letters BGI because it's no longer located in Beijing. And so they've been running this as a quasi-private company, but financed by the local government there. And they do lots of things. They do medical testing. They do sequencing. They've, I don't know, have been on the cover of Nature a dozen times for different, you know, uh, research projects they've been involved with. Um, we propose to them that one way to get at human intelligence is to collect genotypes for, or DNA, which then you sequence to get the genotypes, uh, from uh, outliers, from people who are exceptionally intelligent. And that would give you some advantage in looking for specific genetic variants that were correlated to uh, superior intelligence. So that we, we actually proposed that project to them. And uh, for them, it was a tiny you know, component of what they do, but uh, they were willing to go ahead with it. Okay. How is that project going? So um, I don't want to bore your listeners with all the horrible corporate details of what's happened at BGI, but uh, I guess to answer your question, I have to. So we went out and collected, we recruited about, I guess, about 3,000 people who have pretty high IQs. Uh, I would say roughly the threshold um, for the population of people that recruit, we recruited is at least around plus three standard deviations. So generally better than one in a thousand type capability. And you know, we recruited them in various ways. Some of them were recruited uh, based on, you know, having PhDs in very quantitative subjects from top departments or based on their GRE scores or SAT scores. And then a big chunk of them were actually, uh, we have some DNA through our collaborator, Robert Plowman, who got it through um, talented and gifted programs that have been running in the U.S. for a long time. And some of those individuals volunteered to be in the in the program as well. So we have these samples. Now, this is now getting into the nitty gritty, so apologies <laughs> to your listeners. But so BGI was this at that time was the single biggest customer of a company called Illumina. Illumina is an American company that makes gene sequencers, and they're the leading maker of gene sequencers. And BGI was their biggest customer. At that time, BGI had the most sequencing power of any institution in the world. And so they agreed to uh, do our sequencing for us. And uh, it's quite expensive. Um, at the time, it was several thousand dollars per genome. And so if you multiply that by several thousand people, you're in the millions of dollars. Um, so they got about half of our sequencing done. So about half of the volunteers in our study have been sequenced uh, at fairly low, what today would be considered fairly low coverage, something called 4X coverage. Um, but what happened about that time before we completed the project was that BGI got into a big business altercation with Illumina. They felt they were being overcharged. The Illumina business model is a little bit like the printer business model. They sell you the hardware, but then they make even more money selling you the reagents, the chemicals that you need to run the machines. And BGI got into a big pricing dispute with Illumina um, over what they're being charged for reagents. BGI ended up buying a startup which competes against Illumina. The startup, also based in the U.S., this one was uh, it's called was called Complete Genomics, and it's located just about a kilometer from Google in Mountain View. Complete Genomics is a different technology for sequencing, which at the time was thought to be quite promising. Uh, BGI bought them, 
Um, they then suddenly became not a customer of Illumina, but a competitor. So then Illumina stopped working with them. And uh, it turned out to be a little bit of a disaster for BGI because uh, it took them, well, so it took them much longer than they thought to perfect the complete genomics technology. And in fact, even today, they haven't brought the complete genomics technology to market. So they're, they haven't perfected it. And they, and they actually, I think, in a way, have kind of given up because they've laid off a bunch of people from complete genomics. And I believe now they're back in business, but they're back as the, C, the CEO who led all this during the last few years has been removed. The new CEO, I think, has a good relationship with Illumina. And now I think they're back to using the Illumina technology. So it was kind of one of these failed uh, strategic efforts by the company. We were caught, we were just a tiny part of all this. We were caught up in it. And so this, the other half of our um, volunteers' DNA has not been sequenced. So we're just kind of sitting on half of it. Okay. And you're, you're waiting. Do you think the approach is fundamentally sound of looking at very high IQ people? Yes, I'm 100% sure the approach is sound. And in the meantime, so let me explain why Why would you want to have high IQ people? Sure. Um, if you're paying on the order of thousands of dollars for each sequence, then you'd like to get the most statistical power or statistical bang for your buck for each new person that you sequence. And so that's what we try to do. So if you have people who are outliers – uh, then you get a much stronger signal per individual, uh, and the sequencing cost just scales with the number of individuals. Mm-hmm. So that's our, our strategy. We thought, okay, we'll use our expertise and um, elbow grease or shoe, you know, shoe leather or whatever it is, work in the pavements to, to assemble the right uh, population, and that'll save us money on the sequencing side. And I, I'm abs- absolutely sure that actually is the correct that is a reasonable strategy. And in fact, the estimates that we did for how much power would be needed to detect, we were only hoping to detect maybe a couple of variants. That's what we thought we might be able to do. And we had made some calculations that if we got 3,000 people and we got a large control sample, we might be able to detect the top most impactful uh, cognitive ability variants. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, in the meantime, another collaboration, and there's actually some overlap between our collaboration and this other collaboration, which I'm about to describe, but I'm not, I'm not on the second collaboration. So the second collaboration is called SSGHC, which I think stands for Social Science Genomic Association Consortium. Sometimes I say that wrongly, but I, I think that's roughly right. They get mad at me sometimes because I don't, say, I don't get, the, I get their acronym, what the meaning of their acronym is. But it's a very big collaboration. It's across you know, many dozens of universities, hundreds of individual investigators. And they've been pooling uh, genome data that they've been getting from other studies, typically medical studies and things like this. But where they happen to know the level of educational attainment of the individual. And that has some correlation. Educational attainment has some weak correlation, you know, fairly weak, but it's there, correlation with cognitive ability. And so by assembling this huge sample, they've got – their most recent study had three or 400,000 people in it. They were able – they've now been able to detect 162 variants associate with cognitive ability. How much of IQ do those variants explain? How many IQ points? So it's very tricky So because the estimates of the effect sizes are themselves noisy. But um, let's suppose that an average person – so, so let's suppose you had a – well, just to finish my thought, okay. So so you might say, oh, Steve, your, your effort to find the first uh, IQ uh, genetic variants failed because you didn't complete your study. Um, and this other group scooped you because they, they first found a few, and now in their second paper they've found up to 160. And I don't really mind, actually, because I'm just trying to get this uh, particular area of science moving forward. I think it's great what SSGAC – uh, accomplished, but I think their results show that had we uh, had we continued on our path, we would have also found, you know, some of the variants that they found. And at the time that I proposed my study, people didn't even believe that IQ was a highly polygenic trait controlled by many genes of small effect. But that's now kind of irrefutable based on what SSGAC has found. What, so, do, you mean, so, what do you mean by sorry when you say highly polygenic? Polygenic. Oh, 
just means that it's controlled by many different genes, many different uh, genetic variants, many different loci in the genome okay. contribute to the variation found in the human population. So there's lots of small effects from many different genes. Yeah. And if you know the central limit theorem, that is literally an explanation for why we see normal distributions in cognitive ability. Right, right, right. So if you, if you, if, yeah, if you have many small effects that are additive, uh, the central limit theorem says the, the ultimate vari the ultimate outcome variable will be normally distributed. So it's, it's, it's solving a basic mystery of, you know, the universe of human, you know, nature. So, mm -hmm. um, so I, I would say as a theorist, okay, I'm not, never said I was a good experimentalist <laughs> in, in physics. We actually differentiate between the two job categories. Uh, as a theorist, I'm successful because everything I said in 2010 when we started this BGI project has turned out to be true. Um, but we weren't the first to actually get the specific hits, uh, SSJ beat the specific hits, and all, I think all credit to them. Okay. Now, um, you were asking uh, how much variation is accounted for by these 160. Now, the 160 is only a fraction of the total number that we expect to find. We probably expect to find thousands, okay, of variants in the end. And so, but interestingly, if you aggregate the estimated effect sizes of the, these 160 uh, variants that are already found, you're talking about many tens of IQ points. Oh. So, so um, you know, if you had somebody who had the bad versions of all of these 162, and then you flip them all into the plus versions, the, their IQ would go up significantly. I mean, really significantly, like many tens of points. Okay. So at least that's the estimate. Um, and it's a noisy estimate, but, you know, when you add up 162, probably the errors, you know, rough. So, so you can have some confidence in the, in what I'm saying. And I, I imagine given the exponentially falling costs of gene sequencing, it's going to become a lot easier to do these kind of studies in the near future. Yeah. So as a theorist, I would say that, you know, some subsequent work that I've done on the computational side has made estimates for how much data you need to more or less solve the genetic architecture oh, and for intelligence. And that data, that data threshold is probably a million or a few million well-phenotyped individuals. So okay. if, you, if you had a few million... So if you have a few million... a few million people for whom you, who, for whom you had, you know, what measured their IQ fairly accurately, reasonably accurately, and you had their genotypes, then by using various algorithms, you could probably deduce the genetic architecture. And um, how much how much variation in IQ do you think is explained by genetics? Well, so okay, so if you look at twin studies, the number could be as high as 0.8 of the variance, and that's so. What's that's what that's numbers derived from looking at say identical twins who are raised in different families. So you randomize a little bit over the environment and then you let them grow to adulthood. Generally you want them to go to late adulthood because when people are young, the environment has a stronger influence on the phenotype. But as they get older, people sort of become who they are. They, if they're bookish nerdy people, they tend to read more even if their adoptive parents didn't. Mm -hmm. And so the heritability just increases until people are like, you know, in their late twenties or thirty. And by that point, uh, it, the rough estimate is you can account for something like 0.8 of the total variant. Okay, so that that's now. Oh, go on. That's the total theoretical genetic, you know, heritability. However, um, you would not get all of that um, from uh, particular uh, methods. So if you if you only did what are called SNP genotypes, that doesn't get every all the information in the genome, and so you would lose some of the heritability. So there are there are various lower estimates of the heritability of intelligence, which depend on the specific way you're characterizing the genotype. Okay, so we're not doing full sequencing yet because it's too expensive. Well, interestingly, so in our study we did do whole genome sequencing, but SSGAC only had SNP genotypes. Okay, so you're trying to guess at what genes might be useful or not. Yes, it's it's not only genes. Uh, so genes typically. What people mean by genes is things that pro uh, that that code for individual proteins. Mm -hmm. Of course, lots of switches near the genes which regulate them, 
And so, you know, if you have one version of a little switch and I have another, there might be some slight difference in the way our brains are built or function. And so we often say gene, but we don't necessarily mean gene. We mean some thing in the gene, in the DNA, which is doing something uh, with brain development. Okay. So what... What I'm really interested in is the possibility for enhancing human intelligence or, you know, selecting for embryos that are going to be smarter on average. What, I've, I've read in your blog that you think the main barrier to this is not the, the technology of, like, messing with embryos, but rather just the knowledge of the genetic yeah. architecture of intelligence. Yes. So let me describe the current of technology. So um, right now... There are about a million cycles of IVF done each year worldwide. So IVF is in vitro fertility. It's done. Uh, it's sometimes it's done not not for fertility reasons. Uh, there are actually some famous people who did it, you know, electively, not because they were having fertility problems. But but generally, it's done. Most people are doing it because they have fertility problems. And what happens is that you hormonally stimulate the female. Uh, she overproduces eggs. You extract the eggs. Sometimes you can say from a young woman. Or 20 eggs at a time. You fertilize them with the, the sperm, uh, and then you let the uh, embryo grow to maybe the cells. And at that point, you can pull a few cells off without harming it, and you can then genotype the individual embryo based from the DNA from those few cells. And then you could make a selection. So somebody could tell you which of these embryos is likely to be smarter. You could those over the one. Well, that's the interview. Thank you for listening to The Future Strategist. Goodbye.